So, Jim, the work in these six papers reaches across a lot of chemicals and contaminants. Are there any common results or insights that were gleaned from the effort? And also, did you see that some species or types of animals in particular as being more or less in jeopardy as compared to the past? Uh, well, Jenny, that's a great question. You know, I think the best example is for nonspecific toxicants, which um, we also call baseline toxicity and narcosis. Uh, those chemicals act by this mode of action, uh, cause mortality at about 2 to 8 uh, micromoles per gram, or about 400 to 1,600 parts per million. Um, that is assuming a molecular weight of about 200. Uh, the LC50 values for these compounds range over six orders of magnitude. That, that's a million-fold. Yet the tissue concentrations resulting in mortality vary by um, less than tenfold, which I think is a huge difference. Um, several other chemicals are also noteworthy, even those that act uh, with a specific mechanism of action and, uh, and are metabolized. Um, chlorophenols are another group, a good example, where the tissue residue toxicity metrics are far reduced over those based on exposure concentrations for a large number of uh, different uh, compounds in that group. Also, organometals such as methylmercury, organotins, and organoselenium that I just mentioned are, are very interesting and actually surprising. Uh, tributyl tin, I think, is one, of, one really great example. Uh, for a wide variety of animals, aquatic inverts, um, uh, fish, and small mammals, the uh, lethality level is about 10 parts per million, which, which has very low variability among all these all its different species. Uh, and from that, we can conclude that any animal with a tissue concentration uh, approaching that level will likely uh, succumb. Uh, even for sublethal effects, such as growth, reproductive abnormalities in fish and uh, implosexual snails, the tissue concentrations associated with those uh, responses are really uh, quite predictable. And I think an important point from this uh, example is really to focus on specific endpoints and specific taxa when, when considering the tissue residue toxicity. For example, nymphosex, I mean, just happens at the uh, stenoglossus and snail, so you really need to focus on the snails when you're um, looking at that particular response. As for the status of species sensitivity um, or jeopardy, I really don't expect to see any uh, changes here, except that the tissue residue approach, I think, encourages us to examine uh, toxicants based on their mode of action me and mechanism of action. And um, that helps us realize that some compounds act by um, multiple mechanisms. Um, I think when we focus on a chemical's potency, we often find uh, low-dose effects that really had not been previously um, observed or uh, tested for. All right, so thereby increasing the sensitivity of the overall assay. I think so, yeah. Okay. In the introductory paper for the series, you mentioned that one of the goals of the workshop was to identify deficiency in the tissue residue approach and how those deficiencies could be overcome. Could you elaborate for us on what was found and some of the potential solutions that you came up with? Sure. I, I think there's numerous deficiencies and um, areas that really need a lot of work. Um, I think the most important deficiencies concern our understanding of um, tissue residue toxicity for metals and irreversible toxicants, um, such as some pesticides like organophosphates. Uh, fortunately, these areas are um, active um, areas of research, and um, you know a lot of people are working to understand our um, the mechanisms that go into the tissue-based uh, toxicity for those. Um, also on this list, I would include the availability of the tissue re residue data that we have to work with and, and the way it's collected. Uh, another deficiency is uh, an incomplete classification system for toxicants and their modes and, and mechanisms of action. Very important that we uh, work on that and get it right. 
Another is the inappropriate combining of endpoints and species uh, for toxicity assessment. Um, sometimes when you combine too much, you get much more variability than um, is really warranted. I think uh, the way we consider uh, factors such as lipid, lipid content, let's say, of tissue and, and how we normalize concentrations is another area of focus um, for us. Um, also how we extrapolate between um, different species and tissues and also between uh, matrices uh, such as tissue and water. These extrapolation factors are, are something that um, you know really need to be focused on and, and um, fleshed out. And, and also the lack of consensus, really, that many of the concepts and terms we use for um, tissue residue toxicity. You know, all these things are, are being considered and um, I think are recognized as needing improvement. Um, the, one good example for all this is metals. The work group at our Pelston uh, workshop provided some tangible recommendations for improving the use of tissue residues for characterizing metal toxicity. Uh, one recommendation from that group was to further investigate the biologically available metal thin tissue um, and distinguish it from the biologically inactive fraction that's been detoxified for the animal. Um, focusing on that, I think, will really improve the utility for um, TRA4 metals in uh, many species. And you know, our Pelston provided a lot of guidance for overcoming uh, some of these problems, um, and a good deal of that specific information for those deficiencies can be found in our uh, review papers that were published in the, um, the issue you mentioned of IEAM this month. Great, thank you. Another aspect that you had mentioned in the introductory paper for the series was that the tissue residue approach has been applied in situations involving Superfund sites and also with endangered species. Could you tell us more about why the tissue residue approach was sought out in these cases and how exactly it was utilized? Sure, briefly. Recently, um, the tissue residue approach has been used for um, three Superfund site assessments that I know of in the Pacific Northwest, uh, two on the Duwamish River in Seattle, Washington, and another one called Portland Harbor in, in uh, Portland, Oregon. I'm not sure exactly why the TRA was sought out, except that some of the folks involved with those um, sites are also proponents of the tissue residue approach, and you know, I think they appreciate its utility. Uh, the first Superfund site, on the, uh, the one on the Duwamish, was about 12 years ago. And in that, they considered uh, tributyl tin um, effects on growth. They basically set a, um, a tissue value for uh, growth effects. And it was just that particular compound. Uh, the Portland Harbor site um, is much more recent and really far more ambitious. Those, the folks that, um, that were involved with that assessment are still involved with that assessment compiled tissue residue toxicity data for a large number of chemicals um, of interest in, at that site, including organics and metals. And I've seen um, a lot of the results from that, and I was actually very impressed with the low variability for the uh, tissue residue toxicity metrics and the species sensitivity distributions. And I really don't know what the status is for that evaluation, so I really can't tell you um, how it's utilized. I, I think it's still ongoing, which, you know, a lot of these Superfund sites go on and on for years and years, so I think that one's still um, work in progress. And uh, personally, I've used the tissue residue approach for a few uh, endangered species evaluations in the Pacific Northwest, and I won't go into any of those just due to time constraints. Sure, sure. And is there potential for some of the work uh, involving the TRA to be published as case studies for other researchers in the future? Oh, absolutely. I, I think that's, um, yeah, I think that's definitely possible. I, I think eventually, like the Portland Harbor site, that will all be published. And it, you know, it is mentioned briefly in our um, papers, in the uh, uh, Sappington paper and um, 
I'm not sure it was in the first McCarty chapter or not, but um, we did briefly mention it, but um, not a lot of detail just because it's still ongoing. You know, I know the folks involved would probably like to, to have that as a case study and get that out there. That would be great. And finally, for the young scientists and researchers out there, what do you envision are the next steps and what are some of the things that you think still need to be done? Good question. Well, you know, for the scientists just beginning their careers um, in environmental toxicology and really others who have actually been in the field for a while, you know, I would encourage them to familiarize themselves with using tissue concentrations as the dose metric and consider how the tissue residue approach for um, toxicity assessment can help them understand injury to different species and how it can be used to uh, further enhance environmental protection, which is, you know, really what it's all about, what we're trying to do. And, you know, finally, I do think there's a great deal of work that needs to be done. Um, there's really only a few chemicals that we have examined in detail and, and have some good data on. Um, and we still need to, you know, standardize our approach for data collection, evaluation, hypothesis testing. And, you know, once we focus on these aspects, I, you know, hopefully I, I think it will improve the utility of the approach and make it far more useful to uh, lots of different people involved. Oh, good to know. That's all I got. <laughs> well, Jim, thank you again for taking the time to speak with us today. Absolutely. My pleasure. And again, for our listeners, the Tissue Residue Approach Special Series is in the January 2011 issue of IEAM. I'm Jenny Shaw, and thank you again for listening to the IEAM podcast.